We are a group of friends bound by our appreciation for liberty and good podcasting. Free-minded thinkers from all walks of life, our values come together with one accord to discuss the common culture and news of the day, along with whatever random crap is going on in our lives. Welcome to the Union of the Unknowns. Hey, hello and welcome to the Union of the Unknowns podcast, where we ask, seek and knock, and where any question is worth asking and no door is out of bounds. Your Union of the Unknowns for today are my very Aussie self, Stella Q, apparently from Down Under, although my Flat Earth friends might challenge that. Joining me today is uh, from the US of A and my unknown and dear friend and crazy cat lady, Ashley. Think, change, repeat. How are you going, Ashley? Hey, hello. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being part of this. I've been looking forward to this for quite some time. Yes, me too. We have the double privilege today of two very special guests from my very own stomping ground in the aftermath of Dictator Dan's Victoria State of 1984. <laughs> I'd like to welcome Drew Misson from Your Missing the Point podcast. Welcome, Drew. Thanks for having me on, guys. I've been waiting for this one. Looking forward to it. Oh, yes. So have I. And our other very special guest is on probably our around about our antithesis um, of the world, geographically speaking, uh, is uh, our our um, peaceful man, Jin the Ninja, with a plethora of knowledge. Welcome, Jin. Thank you, Stella. Thank you, Ashley. Hey, Drew. Really, I'm looking forward to this for like three months or two months at least. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be good. So, Jin and Drew, are, uh, they're very different people. Um, however, they both have a very keen interest and knowledge in both history and spirituality and... Um, and the history of spirituality. Um, for some of our listeners uh, may be aware that the Australian referendum vote just took place. Um, the Voice, uh, which both Drew and myself have separately covered over the time, um, but we're not really here to talk about that today. It has ha it has brought up um, um, questions of the origins of Indigenous people through that process. Um, how Indigenous are the Indigenous, how first are the First Nations, um, their roots, um, how uh, different is possibly the reality compared to the narrative. We all know that history has been presented in possibly a, an untruthful form about many, many things. Um, so despite all the political debauchery, we're here to look into the history of the Indigenous people, um, particularly about Australia. Um, so I just wanted to explore the origins. Um, I've tried to do a little bit of my own research uh, and found it to be very ambiguous. Uh, one source will say this, another source will say that. It's very hard to define anything. Um, so I'd like to talk about, in your knowledge, um, what you guys think of the origins of Indigenous people and... Um, do they deserve to, well, not deserve, are we are we heading in the right direction as far as um, trying to reconcile and, and, and all these treaties that are going on with the Indigenous around the world? We'll start with, we'll start with Drew. What, what do you think about all this? Um, the history side of things, how accurate do you think that that is when it comes to Indigenous uh, Australia? I think it's a case of not finding the forest through the trees. I think they present a lot of facts that are in a, like a giant ball pit like you've ever been to like a Chuck E. Cheese or a kid's playpen there might be one red ball amongst the the thousands of yellow and that one red ball might be the scarec of truth but it's enough for them to present a great narrative about it I think the current history and cultural understanding spiritual understandings we have of First Nations Australia is quite it's accurate in what they present but it's filled with a lot of mistruths, which is very ironic because they're trying to say uh, we're putting out misinformation and disinformation at the moment. But the impression that we get of Aboriginal culture today is a very sanitised and romanticised version of what reality really is. Um, I think the majority of Westerners, foreigners, even a lot of Australians have this idea that Aboriginal culture is somewhat of a monoculture and it was the same all across our nation, which couldn't be further from the truth. 
a continent the size of Australia, its width and breadth is comparable to North America, to Europe, and you're comparing chalk and cheese. You've got someone at the west coast of Australia and comparing someone to Victoria. It's completely different ends of the spectrum. It's like comparing an Irishman to someone in Greece. They might have the same skin colour, but the culture, the language, the, the spiritual connections to land, the history, even the genetics can be very, very different. So it's a it's a question that keeps getting murkier because they keep pushing, they put back the idea of Aboriginal inhabitants longer and longer. I can remember at one point it was somewhere between uh, 25 to 30,000 years, and then it became 50,000. Now it's up to 65,000 years with some people on the left-leaning persuasion of politics suggesting it's over 100,000 years, which very well could be. But from my research, it lends more along the lines of Australia is no different to North America. What you would describe as First Nations people arrived in successive waves that came into the country. It wasn't just one group of people. And with that, you've had multiple um, ethnic groups that came in all at the same time. And up until now, even prior to European settlement, kind of became a mixed group of people themselves. Um, there's a group of pygmies that supposedly lived in North Queensland that up until recently were considered to be factual and real. And then modern day academia kind of wrote it off as being fake. Yeah, right. Okay. Well, at, yeah, I only just learned about these pygmies very, very, very recently, actually. Um, we'll get to that a little bit later, I think. But um, at the moment, we're just showing a graphic of um, all the different tribes. We can't zoom in on that, can we, Ashley? Or maybe not. Um, yeah, th there's, uh, I think, I believe it was about 500 tribes um, at the time of um, landing from <clears throat> white man landing. Um, so, it's like with what's just happened recently with the referendum, it's it's difficult for, as you said, Drew, for an Indigenous group of people to speak for everyone else because that is also a very culturally culturally a no-no. Um, one tribe is not meant to speak for another tribe. So, um, yeah, I just wanted to show the um, vast amount of different tribes that are or were and probably still are, well, <laughs> not quite so many, of course, um, in Australia at the time. That just shows the vast. This is the interesting thing as well, Stella. This is the agreed upon modern idea of what nations existed, that if you do speak to anyone in mob, even within your local areas, there's contention around who actually owns that land. Um, within my own area, mm -hmm. on the bottom of that map, it was just called um, uh, Kurnai, uh, Um But in my area, there's even smaller groups or smaller nations within those two larger ones that contest they're not actually a part of those groups so it's how mm. long's a, a, a length of string it becomes quite murky when you've got the only history that's really recorded is oral traditions and um the odd cave painting which are only generally found in far north queensland it's not really a southern australia type of um of uh, cultural practice yes exactly oral traditions and you know we if we apply the uh, law of Chinese whispers to that, it's um, very difficult to uh, define anything. So it is all sort of scientific guesswork and narrative. Um, there has been a number of studies uh, conducted to try to determine, you know, more genetic age. Um, but some of those studies uh, have been very flawed um, and also... Yeah, very ambiguous, I suppose is the word. Very hard yes, to pin we, anything. As you said, there's, you know, 60,000 years, 65, 50, um, even down to the amount of Aboriginal people and Torres Strait Islanders, you know, that, that varies greatly too. They can't even decide on the population now, let alone what happened, you know, centuries ago. Exactly. The, um, the, the greatest source of information for genetic ancestry of where Aboriginal Australians came from, a lot of people just thought, you know, it was Southeast Asia, Indonesia, that type of thing, Papua New Guinea even perhaps. But the Human Genome Project, was, which was conducted in the early thousands, mm -hmm. that pointed out that the haplogroup closest associated with Aboriginal Australians is actually descended from India. So you've got this big migration of... Um, what would you would consider to be prehistoric Indian peoples into Australia. So much so that there are rural tribes within parts of India 
that just on their face, appearance-wise, are indistinguishable from Aboriginal Australians. If you were to step foot in Arnhem Land and you saw a First Nations person and then stood foot, stepped foot in those mountains, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference between the two peoples. And they are of the same haplo group. Yeah, so that's a great indication there. Um, and you've got different successive waves as well represented there, which is the theory that I subscribe to. Um, you've got via India down through island hopping. You've got through Cambodia, Thailand, up the top of area, New Guinea. So you've got these successive waves of different peoples all mixing and, uh, and coalescing in, in one place. But if we're to go off the, the ancient hominid hypothesis where you've got Denosovans, Neanderthals, Homo erectus, Homo habilis, um, Florensis, the Hobbit people, all these humans existed on Earth at one point together, like a kind of Lord of the Rings type of word. You've got the elves, the dwarves, the humans, all that type of stuff. All these different humans existed on Earth at the same time. So you could surmise that at some point, at very least, Denosovan and Florensis, Hobbit small people, were in Australia before Aboriginals. You could hypothesize that. We don't have evidence in archaeology as yet, but you could hypothesize that those pre-hominid humans were here before Aboriginal Australians. I I, would, I just wanted to jump in and say that I totally agree with that about uh, Homo florensis. I, I do think that, that... I mean, we do not have the amount of, like pre-humans we'll say or like homo sapiens we do not have that in the archaeological record in canada but there are of course oral traditions about little people it's very very common especially among plains people um i am mixed so i will just say that but i'm just going to it's totally i'm just speaking from myself from you know text i'm not speaking from like cultural experience so, so i'll just let me just say that but um definitely I, yeah, no, I agree with all of that. I think multiple succession theory, I think that's very strong. I think that it would be impossible for some of the related ethno-linguistic groups, especially, okay, so I'll give specific examples. So there's a group in what is called Slave Lake, which is partly in Alberta and partly in Saskatchewan. That's Treaty 8 territory. Canada is all numbered treaties, mostly. Um, not all, but uh, like it's the large swath of the country. So basically... They are related to what people know as like Navajo or Diné people. And they also call themselves Diné, which it just means the people, as well as that's what the word in Navajo also means. So it would take people hundreds and hundreds of years to cross that water, the mountains, the subarctic territory to get to New Mexico where they're the four corners so it's like arizona new mexico utah colorado so i think to be indigenous to there i think we're only looking at like 600 years i i mean i just cannot see it because when we look at the protoculture we're saying they have a very different plains culture or a subarctic culture they're just not it just it would be so different and we're talking about like geoontological relationships like people's spiritual relationships with the land they live on and so i know when i think stella and drew spoke with i think layla and she was talking about the local kind of like traditions vary by mob and we call them bands or indian tribes or different things we but in canada it's all legal terms right because we have something called the indian act so everything basically is governed under the Indian Act. There are 229 bands that are governed under that legal framework. And then there are 38 bands who are sort of independent, but they're also not quite independent. So it's it's quite complicated. And there's some something called status and non-status Indians. And that's a whole other kind of like legal discussion. And then there's also something called like the Métis people, which is very interesting because they are like a mixed race, like usually French and Scottish mixed with like Plains Cree, Ojibwe, Swampy Cree, Dene, and a little bit of Blackfoot, if you're talking about Southern Alberta. But they led a rebellion in the 1860s against the British crown and tried to establish their own kind of like republic in what we now call Manitoba. So 
just like how Drew and Sola have, like, what I think I've heard you say, Drew, the Canberra natives, like the mixed race, kind of like cafe au lait color people, that is pretty much what we have here. And we have a lot of, like, urban natives in positions of academia who are very left-leaning, but they all are multiracial. And they have specific kinds of orientations politically that are very, well, they tend to sacralize things that traditional people who live on reserve or who are from the prairies would definitely find very blasphemous and very taboo like sexuality like if you know any um native people over the age of 60 they're not going to speak about sex and partly that's due to residential schools but partly it's because most of them grew up in very conservative usually catholic households because Canada at one time was 60% Catholic. Now that has changed, obviously. But even among um, Indigenous people, the religiosity is strong. So, and then you also have problems of addiction, um, poverty, all of that. So you have like kind of disjointed generations, often on reserve. And then in the urban natives tend to like adopt more of the like, whatever postmodern globalist culture and then indigenous becomes kind of a liberal identity to sort of play out politically and what we would call they often are known to just like over indigenize themselves like they will wear feather earrings and they will like take native names when they didn't have them and you know it's just it's a lot of it's just it's very liberal it's just very like they're playing a liberal identity politics and it's not really like that because citizenship in a nation is a legal process but then at the same time you have to be related to the people who live there you can't just you know you can't just say oh i'm a member of this or i'm a member of this you you sort of have to be part of that community historically at least on the rolls so <laughs> not here you don't <laughs> you just have to be um accepted by mob in australia for the most part then you're a part of your mob and country um that liberalizing of in of First Nations or Indigenous peoples is something that I'm noticing quite a bit. And it's actually to the detriment of cultural identity as well. I've seen it as a cross-cultural contamination, particularly within Australia. Um, Australia was colonised on the East Coast first. So naturally, a lot of those original First Nations peoples either died through conflict, disease, um, or were their, their culture was just taken away from them through... Um, colonization processes we know that's the history that existed so to try and make up for the loss of culture what we find is a lot of academics within tribes and mobs they go to areas in which are still rich and um, strong in their cultural practices on the opposite side of the country in different clans and different cultures they take their ideas their cultural practices bring it back and then try to play it off as this is what we did on the east coast where it couldn't be further from the truth. So we're seeing this cross-cultural contamination happening within First Nations peoples. So like the things you alluded to, Jin, of wearing um, feathers in their ears and all this type of stuff, they, that may not necessarily have been a high cultural practice within that um, clan or group. We see it in Australia now. Throughout all of the voice referendum, not that I want to talk about this too much, throughout all of that, we saw a lot of acknowledgement and welcome to country ceremonies where young Australians were dressing in air quotes, traditional clothing and makeup, which looked very North American Indian and had a representation that I've never, ever seen in Aboriginal culture in Australia at all. So we're seeing this uh, jigsaw puzzle of take a little bit here, take a little bit from there, put it together and, and make it look like it's something you consider to be First Nations. So it really brings into question what is defined as Indigenous and what is defined as First Nations? How long does someone need to be in a, a certain geographical area to be termed Indigenous? Um, like we see with North America, and you alluded to before, the idea of Indian from North America through to Central and South America, for a long time we were told that they were all the same people from Southeast Asia, going across the Bering Strait, across Alaska, into, into the Americas. We found out later on these are different ethnic groups that arrived at different times. So does the group that arrive last still have the determining factor of being Indigenous? Is it the ones that arrive first? Are they all Indigenous? At what point do we determine who is 
is Indigenous within a, a geographical region. And not only that, but what percentage of Indigenous determines being Indigenous as well? I'm not sure whether there's a cutoff point there. Do well, yeah, well, know? Um, in Australia, there isn't anymore. There used to be a percentage rate. Um, mm. I believe it would have been probably back in the 60s up until the last 30, 40 years. It was, I think it was one sixteenth was considered Indigenous. But now, according to the law of the land, and, and if you go off the legalese, Indigenous simply means anyone who's born here. So any first-generation Australian, by definition of our law and legal system, is Indigenous Australian. They may not be Aboriginal, but they are Indigenous. Yes, and there's a lot of, um, well, at the moment, there's a lot of people claiming to be Indigenous who definitely are not, but it doesn't get looked into because that's too racist. But, uh, of course, that's modern day, isn't it? Um, it's interesting that, uh, yeah, it's it's a real blend and a mix and, and things get adapted to make things look more Indigenous, like you're saying, Drew. And, and I was very, I was quite, well, it was a bit of a jaw-dropping moment for me, actually, to learn that um, the dot painting that is very famous of Aboriginal art was created by a white French artist back in 1971. Yes, now it's that's... actually a part of pointillism. That blew me away, right? Okay, that blew me away, and that then that got adapted um, and taken on into some sort of cultural importance. But um, yeah, that was that was quite a mind blowing moment for me. So it just shows how much has been accepted uh, without question. Um, at the moment, we're looking at a graphic for, for the people only listening. We're looking at a graphic right now of. Um, the comparison between the looks of the Southern Indian or Dravidian peoples and the Australian Aboriginal peoples, and they're very, very, very similar. And um, just recently I learned that I think it might be just up in the top areas of, of uh, Australia, there is um, one of the ceremonial dances is called the Shiva dance. Um, Jin, do you want to tell us a little bit about the Shiva dance and what, what, how that would have um, maintained its way into Aboriginal culture? please? Sure. You know. I, no, I, I definitely will. I, but I just want to say a couple things just in response, because this is obviously sure. so interesting. Um, so the pointillism and the dot painting, that's very interesting because we also have the same phenomena in Canada across culture. So really the glass bead trade only took off by the French, by the uh, Cour de Bois is what we call them. So the French like fur traders or the French like lumberjacks would come and they would take like, um, uh, what's it called, a femme pays. So uh, like a woman of the country, so a country marriage. And they would, um, I'm sorry, I have a really Quebecois accent. I'm just going to own it. But... <laughs> you own that. Oh, we have no accent from Gene right now. He'll be back. <laughs> I apologize for that. Um, That's all right. <laughs> anyways, uh, so so we have that. So the French traders also brought in the glass beads. So we do have something that is called Métis beading, which is very famous. And there's a Métis artist from Northern Alberta. Her name is Christy Belcour. She works for like Versace and Armani and she does like sunglasses and all the beading and stuff. It's, it's quite lovely, but you can definitely tell it is a European form. It looks very similar to like some of the Dutch paintings um, with the, it's all floral usually that's more of a considered to be a woman's art so i just think that that's interesting that french kind of connection and like the high culture to low culture i think that there's something really interesting there and then also about what drew was saying about how during the welcome to country so we would call that a land acknowledgement i'm sure everybody who's listening who's from like canada maybe the us would also would also know be familiar with that term so that is really where it gets very funny. Often people make a lot of jokes about um, land acknowledgements because simply people don't know how to do them. And they are just absolutely ridiculous. I'm just saying from my perspective, it's just me, just my opinion. But I find them very ridiculous. I always have. I never, they're not a traditional thing at all. There is um, powwow culture since the 60s. Powwows are kind of like a pageant circuit. Really, that's what they are. And so a lot of the mix, mixing of the different cultures, especially Plains culture, Plains, um, Dakota, usually, that's quite prominent. You'll see a lot of things that are taken from the Dakota people. And it would just, it's worth mentioning that the Dakotas are also 
while one band of the Dakotas are extremely wealthy and one band of the Dakotas are extremely poor. So I just think that there is something very interesting there as well, but they're, culture has become sort of totalized and like spread out so even in canada like when you go to a powwow you will see people who are cree but they will wear dakota kind of like jingle dresses or feather dress or not feather dress i'm sorry ribbon ribbon skirts so ribbon skirts are a big deal especially for the mmig which is the murdered and missing indigenous women women will often wear Ribbon skirts to support that, but ribbon skirts are actually a very recent invention, probably from like the 1910s during one of the, uh, I think it was scarlet fever, one of the plague that happened, maybe tuberculosis. So again, you just, I, I, I understand what you're saying when you're saying that you're seeing like this kind of amalgamation. And I think that we also have been having that for a long, long time. Like I said, the powers of McGuire since the 60s. So I think even in the dancing, even in the dancing, and it becomes very much like a competition, like a like if you've ever been to like a little kids dance competition. I don't know if anyone has. I have because I have a sister. So they, it's very much like that. And there's like judging, and people will give out. I mean, they give out awards and all of that. So I just think that there's like a kind of institutionalization of culture that was considered to be sacred. Now, one thing we do have in Canada, which is very interesting, is we had a very good um, Canadian film board for quite a number of years, and they did record some of the last Sundances, which are the most important kind of religious ceremonial things in Plains culture. And I mean, Canada is 1.4 times the size of Australia. I'm not trying to be like, oh, our land is bigger than your land, but I just... And it's four times bigger than the continental U.S. So it's like a really huge place. So like what Drew was saying, like you have people like in Vancouver who are like Tlingit and Haida and um, Simshian and all those like kind of coastal people. People will know them from the totem poles. And then you have like people where I live where it's like they they eat eels and they, you know, they hunt whales. And it's it's just a totally different culture and totally different kind of like language. It's... um, Algonquin language and you know there's a lot of language isolates in BC as well so anyways I'm yeah, sorry I, yeah I'll, I'll, I'll circle it right back to the Shiva dance I just wanted to say all of that first no that's fine just while we're on the subject of the languages um that's obviously I guess you've also got the same thing where a lot of the original languages have disappeared and they've um there's only a few left is that the case or are they fairly well preserved still so the culture that I'm closest to, we'll say, is Cree, and there are uh, probably about 300,000 people who speak Cree fluently, and it's called the Y Plains dialect. So there are like six or seven dialects, but that has become the primary dialect that is spoken. Now, I'm not saying it's spoken well, and it's definitely not spoken like French, because French is very obviously common in Canada, but it is relatively common, and you will see it, and then there's a lot of people who speak the... I'm going to fuck this up. I think it's Inupiat language, which is from the Arctic, like what we would call like Inuit people, but they don't, they're not actually Inuit. That's actually like a language error. That's a plural. So we, in Canada, we would all say like Inuk, which is a, just a singular, like as them as a people. So that, yeah, there's a lot of different variety of language. I mean, I think the biggest language is Algonquin. That's pretty much spans from interior BC to all the way to where I am, which is like off the coast of Newfoundland. So yeah, pretty long ways. And then there's also like the Athabascan languages, which is like subarctic. And then you're getting into like the territory of the Dene Yanesian kind of like dialectal continuum, which could be also from Northern Asia, which likely, I mean, that's my opinion is that they are probably related to like Northern Siberians and they're culturally very similar. But that's not the governing opinion, we'll say. Would you mind just giving us a very quick definition of Cree? Is that that's a merge, isn't it? Sort of like a merge of, is that like French merged with something? Métis is, that is the kind of like the Southern Plains culture that was merged with French. Cree culture is like um, the most common in Canada. Most academics are Cree. Most think like people who are famous writers are Cree. So it's basically just like a, it's about, it's Treaty 6 and Treaty 4. So if you, anyone is interested in looking at a map, that's pretty much the Cree territory is all of that. It's not all Cree territory, but that's a large part of it. So it's Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, and part of Ontario. So 
they are the biggest, like they have the most stretch of their territory. Like it's the most spread out. And then also they practice like a plains culture. It's different than like people, what people, Americans would think of like a plains culture. It's like a little bit, it has elements of more Northern, more subarctic borrowing, but definitely it is very similar to like a Dakota kind of like culture. Like Buffalo, it's a Buffalo hunting culture. It's a berry collecting culture, all of that. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right. So the Sheba dance, tell us about this. Oh. <laughs> I apologize. Every time I need it, it cuts out. I apologize. Oh, that's all right. As long as I thought you were actually had left, so that's fine. <laughs> no, no. Um, so the Shiva dance. So as far as I'm familiar, there is the tribal dancing in India, which takes places on the, I think it's the, in the Carolyn coast. So on the, never on the West coast of India, there is a province called or a state called Kerala and they have tribal people who practice kind of like um we'll call them local god rituals but they're but they've obviously incorporated like the larger ideas of hinduism so they will maybe replace the creator god with shiva and so they will do these like crazy dances i think it's called the i will i will uh nest a link in the chat and then maybe ashley can bring it up later but yeah, great. Uh, it's a uh, they do incredible costumes made of straw and painted faces and they do kind of like a fire ritual where they burn things and offer fruits and sometimes like a goat to the fire. So that's basically what I know of them. It's definitely more of an anthropological like exercise is more out of my experience because I'm more mm. Himalayan, but yeah, no, definitely that is a real thing. And like, um, yeah, because Shiva, Shiva is an Indian goddess. Yeah. Uh, God. Yeah. Oh yeah, he's an and Indian that's... god. He's you know he's he himself is an amalgamation. He probably is from the Alcon Huns who were in India from the third till like the seventh century. So they brought with them a solar bull cult and a lunar bull cult. So you have kind of these different a daytime Shiva and then you have a nighttime Bhairava, but they're considered to be very like the same but not quite the same. So he is the cre he is the destroyer god. If you're doing a normative mm -hmm. Hindu interpretation, he is the, considered to be the destroyer god, but he's also considered to be the creator god. But it's a more complicated theological reasoning as to why he isn't directly the creator god. And that's just one way to understand because it's very, very complicated. Like different, there's so many different sects, so many different theological tendencies it can be very difficult to trace. So I'm mm. much better at like the Himalayan stuff at Tantra, but obviously I know a little bit about the other stuff. So I always try and bring it in. Well, I think it's very telling. I mean, if the Aboriginals of Australia are, have a Shiva dance, I mean, it's very telling of where they've come from <laughs> really, isn't it? It's, well, you um... throw into that Stella that there's historical precedents and spiritual precedents for movement out of India. So you've got the, the Aryan invasion of India, where the Aryan people, with their chariots, they came in, they they took out huge swaths of land and made an empire within India. They pushed out a lot of what they would consider the darker-skinned people. That's how a lot of the... Now, correct me wrong, Jim, this is my a rudimentary understanding, that when the Aryans arrived, they helped develop the caste system within India. And that was a lot of um, outsiders would know the caste system within India unfortunately tends to have a, a melanin rating associated with it in a lot of perspectives, especially further back you go. Um, in more recent times, not so much. Um, so you've got the Aryans that came in, pushed what you consider the original people out, the darker skinned people, which possibly could have been some of the later arrivals into Australia. If a large migration of people had to leave, they would have had to have gone somewhere. Um, and then on top of that, you go into the metaphysical, the spiritual speakings of the Vedas in which there was a war with the monkey people. Now, the, the monkey people were upright walking type of hominid, um, say like a, a Homo habilis, an archaic, a, a Neanderthal, something that was less than human. And what we would consider today to be a, a Bigfoot or a Sasquatch, if they were pushed out and they moved out into the Southeast Pacific into Australia, that could be where the stories of the Yowie originated in Australian culture as well. So we're seeing connections there too. Mm. Yeah, very interesting. Um, just getting back to the the pygmy people that um, were, was mentioned earlier, uh, there were some uh, historical recordings of Chinese 
uh, maritime, like captains in ships, uh, citing these small people. Um, so there was actually some record of them being cited. It wasn't just um, hearsay or oral tradition. There was actually some sightings uh, because despite what they tell us at school, um, can we put up that image with the um, the maps over Australia, please? Thank you. Um, so, yes, uh, Captain Cook was definitely not the first guy to set foot on Australian land or first uh, Westerner or white person. Um, there are maps of, of what Australia was previously called New Holland. Uh, there's a map from 1664, which um, is quite accurate, actually, with, well, the western half of Australia, at least. Uh, there's also a Chinese map from 1794, which is also rather accurate. Uh, and there's also a, a, Greek map, a Greek map that exists um, made by the mapmaker Claudius Ptolemy. Uh, that dates back to 150 AD. So there is a quite a vast, rich history in Australia that uh, we definitely don't get taught in our know, indoctrination years at uh, school. So, um, yes, there has been sightings of these pygmy people. Do, do you know much more about them, Drew? Um, colloquially, they're known as the Negro Grotti. Um, which seems like a right. racist term because of the, the, <laughs> the entomology of it. But it's for a reason. These people aren't considered to be Aboriginal in appearance. They're considered to be more African. So like the pygmies you would encounter that exist today within the, within the continent of Africa, these people were supposedly seen in North Queensland. Um, there's oral stories of cane farmers seeing them going in amongst the crops and taking the sugar cane and leaving. Um, there's a bit of a... a a debate around whether they were a real people that were wiped out or whether they're actually the hobo, um, the Florensis man, the small hobbit-like hominid person. So there's a bit of debate as to whether they were just a pygmy human or they were a pre-hominid that existed within Australia. Mm. Uh, I did read something in my, my research venture of uh, that they were wiped out by the, by the very tall tribe of Aboriginals um, at some point, um, and they seem to exist on the West Coast more so. Um, but who knows? Yes, it's very interesting to look back. Well, um, it kind of plays into Aboriginal dreaming stories of the Quinkins, which are, is a generic term given to spirits, but there were two tribes. There was the Imjim and the Tamara. The Tamara considered the very tall people that helped the Aboriginal people, and the Imjim are considered the bad ones, the little tiny ones, which would hunt down and eat people and eat children. So have these stories actually evolved from one small ethnic group of being short people in Australia and another ethnic group of being tall competing with one another. And that's what developed into these stories. Or is it founded around some kind of metaphysical reality around that? We don't know. Can I just jump in? Because I just want to say that the, we have a story, Drew, that is very similar to what you just said. So like a story of little people considered to be very magical. I don't know if in Australia, that is the case, but here they are considered to be very, not maybe supernaturally powerful, we'll say, but also cannibalistic tendencies. However, it, they can be tamed and they can also become like kinship making. I know that both of you and Stella are familiar with that idea of like um, marrying into a tribe and then you become part of that tribe. So there's this idea that you can also make kinship with them. So they're not considered to be necessarily inhuman but they're not the same like they're clearly not the same it's distinguished in language they're not considered to be the same people so i think that's very interesting and then just to go back to the aryan invasion i i mean that is a very like controversial i'm not even sure how i feel about it but it's just a very controversial kind of like minefield to kind of yeah I think the word is the is the controversial part. If that was the word that was well known within academics and scholars, well up until the early thirties and forties. Um, after that, because of a certain mustache man, it became a bad word. So I would go with the more palatable term today: proto-European. So the original people that might have started off on say the steppes and spread out across Eastern Europe, Eastern Europe, Asia, um, into Western Europe. I'd probably classify them as the proto-europeans that invaded india then i'm okay to use the word aryan i think that that's perfectly fine i think indo-aryan it's very academic i think there's no problem there i think that the idea is is that whether 
because you have this whole um, culture develop in the Saraswati River Valley, which is now part of like Pakistan and Rajasthan. So this is kind of where this like Vedic, like sort of ironic culture developed that we don't really know. We know that they have the two goddesses, Lakshmi and Saraswati. They probably had some other kind of like religious rite that followed somewhat like the Vedas, like the, probably the Yajna to the sun and, you know, maybe other things, but it, it was not, it did not look like contemporary Hinduism at all. And so when they sort of moved in, there's a theory that the Rishis, so the people who wrote the Vedas, the later Vedas, or the Upanishads and the Bhagavad Gita, were actually of mixed character. I've heard several scholars, I don't know if I agree with that or disagree, I just think it's a very interesting idea that they could be also mixed Dravidian. And because there are times, I know in tantric ways, that there are times in certain mantras where you will usually use the Sanskrit words for everything. But there are specific mantras that are not um, Shabar mantras, which are the ones that are colloquial. So we're talking about like old, old Sanskrit mantras that originate in the text. So there are one of them in particular uses the name of uh, Tamil, like a Tamil word that should not really be there. So it's very interesting to me because we're talking about like first century. So I just, I'm not, sh I'm unsure of what the actual history is, but I do know like when the Alcons came in, you started to have Tantra develop. That's in the fifth century. You started to have like the absorption of the solar cult, Surya, who was a very, very important God, especially among people who consider themselves Vaishnava. So people who follow Vishnu as the primary deity that sort of got absorbed into Vishnu and Shiva's cult. And you had a whole change of names. So you had Shiva was not Shiva. He was Vasudeva. And Vishnu was not Vishnu. He was Narayana, the sleeping god. So you just, you have this kind of like transformation where people kind of remixed or ascribe different qualities to the gods that were already existing, as well as combining them with other mystery cults. So I'm not quite... I haven't quite sorted out for myself. It's not because I'm not picking a side. I just haven't sorted out for myself, like where I think that the epistem or the epistemological origin of that is. It's a very complex, complicated thing. I mean, I'm having a hard time keeping up with it all. And I don't know how you remember all these names, Jin, but it's a credit to you. Um, did you want to have a, did you want to bring something up and have a look at that? What's that Wikipedia? Um, Yakshagana? You want oh, to so just that, that is that is one of the Shiva dances that it, the oh, that, right, so okay. they're not they're not ethnic Indians and they're not quite Dravidians, but they are considered to be like um, they're called tribal they're called tribal scheduled tribes, and sometimes they're also known as outcasts or outcasts, but it's not the same as what people know in the West as Dalits. So that's a very different phenomenon. But these are like, this is a tribal form of dancing. And so in my opinion, this is probably, if you're looking to what came to Australia or what people call the Shiva dance, this is probably where it comes from. Because this is yes, a very right. tribal kind of like, it's a more marginal, coastal, um, tribal practice. So I just think that's probably the more likely origin. And obviously it's in the Southern part of India. So you could see them travel through maybe the Ottomans, maybe through the Maldives and bring the culture there because there were, there was um, a temple on the Maldives, a solar and a lunar temple. So I think that that's also very interesting, especially when we're talking about like the Alcon Huns, which I'm really obsessed with right now, obviously. And, uh, and they are bringing in the solar and lunar cults. So I just think that that's interesting. Well, as well. I'm gonna I'm gonna put a cherry on top of that for you, Jin. Looking at a lot of these headdresses, particularly the earlier ones, the more teardrop shaped and the circular headdresses. If you would superimpose that image over some of the cave art of spirits within um, within the Kakadu National Park, they would be indistinguishable from the cave art. Mm. Mm. That's a really interesting point. So not so much spirits, but more ancestral. Are you? Well, that's it. I, I've always I can't. I'm always jumping between one of the two and I kind of sit somewhere in the middle that the physical world and the metaphysical world kind of exist all at the same time. And I think that's what the Aboriginals got right in the dreaming. A lot of people think the dreaming is this tale of the creation of Australia, the how Aboriginal people came to be kind of like the origin stories. But if you talk to anyone from Mobile country, the dreaming is happening right now. It's like this existence that includes the past 
the present and the future all at the same time. Um, so it's not outside the realm of the possibility that we could have had these Indian people, these these tri- early tribes from southern India, come here with those particular ideas and dresses and pass on their culture to people that are already here or they just started the culture here initially. It's interesting how you brought up the sun, the sun and the lunar cults because Australian folklore and mythology around dreaming, a lot of people think it's, a, a, it's all the, the rainbow serpent. That's just one small story from one part of Australia. The one consistent trend I seem to see across a lot of dreaming stories, it's always about the moon and the sun. And like a lot of people could argue about, you know, it's the sun and the moon, such a big part of early um, cultures and civilizations. Of course, it's going to be a part of their stories. But within the Australian context, there's one that stands out the most to me. It's the story of the two suns. Not was there not only was there one large sun in the sky, our current sun, there was a smaller one. And the suns were so strong and hot together, it would scorched and burnt the earth. Supposedly the reason why middle of Australia is so arid and desolate today. So much so that the people, the early people of Australia, speared the small sun, which was the daughter of, of the sun goddess. It died, disappeared, came back to life as the moon, and is always chasing its mother, trying to catch up with her every day. So you've got that lunar story in just one small aspect of of dreaming within one clan. Wow, that's incredibly. Sorry, Sala. Go ahead. No, you're right. I, okay. No, you, you go. You've got much more to say than I have. I was I, I was just going to point out that I I did read in my in my um, research that the, the sun was considered the female and the moon was considered the male. Would that be? Does that sound about right? In, in that in culture, some it is. Yeah. Um. In that culture, it was the mother and the daughter. But there are right, other cultures yeah. in which the moon is the fat, lazy man from the tribe who waited on, had women waiting on him hand and foot, but he got exiled from the, from the, from the mob or the troop. And then he was wandering by himself at night looking for food. That's why he's the moon. So mm, it's different which stories. Is, yeah. yeah, exactly. And that's a classic example of what I was uh, mentioning earlier about if, if there's just oral traditions, things are going to get, you know, distorted, change a little bit, morph um, from through the years and possibly through the tribes. So uh, did you want to say something about that, Jin? Oh, I just found that story very similar to some of the later. So we're just, I'm not talking Vedas, but partly also the Vedas and the story of the churning of the supernal waters. I've told this story a few times already, but it, it really deals with what exactly what you're saying, like a lunar, like a, the mind-born daughter of Brahma. So the mind-born daughter of the creator comes down to earth, descends before the Pleiades descends. So she's like a blinding flash of invisible light. It's a very important concept, like light without heat, light without form. She descends. Then the serpent of the eclipse, who is Rahu, he chases after her and they are considered siblings and they're considered to be kind of like in a infinity or like a figure eight motion, sort of like descending and ascending at different times of the day. And she's accompanied with the two goddesses, Yusha and Prayusha, who is the goddess of the dawn and the dusk. So I think that's also very interesting. And I'll just say, oh, sorry, sorry, go ahead, Drew. Sorry, there's one important part of that story. Not only was the small son, the daughter, speared, she was speared with a poison tip from a snake's venom. So it's that story of the snake eating the sun that you see in a lot of other cultures as well. So many parallels. 100%. I mean, like, that is what Rahu does. He eats the sun with his subtle body, so his tail, and he eats the moon with his physical body, which is his mouth on his head. And the daughter, she, it's interesting because obviously I consider Tantra to be more in a progressive theory of religion, like a more, it's a more higher conceptual idea. But so she cleanses poison. So that's one of her functions is that she can overcome poison. And sometimes she also carries an acacia branch or, and to, um, to be used as medicine, which is also psychogenic. So I think that's also interesting. And Mm. um, yeah, so she is one of the anti-poison goddesses, but there are multiple anti-poison goddesses, but that she is a very, very important one. And she's also the goddess of victory. So, but she supposedly loves their kind of great game, we'll call it. And she is the holder of the silken thread. And she also often holds a needle and a thread. So she'll be considered the wheel holder of the treaty or the one who kind of wields the invisible treaty. That's very important. 
anyways, I'm done. You go, you guys go ahead. <laughs> it's a lot to take in. Yep. There's so many, there's so much, uh, well, I mean, there's so many different tribes and so much different oral laws, uh, oral traditions, etc. So it's going to be pretty much impossible to put any of this into one basket, really, or determine anything. Um, yeah, from, it, it's hard to determine exactly what the history is, um, because there is very little evidence, as we say. Um, even the archaeological evidence that has been found throughout Australia, there's um, a lot of controversy about some of that. Do you do you know anything much about the um, supposed Egyptian hieroglyphs in the central coast, Drew, at all? Just I have near a the Newcastle area? I have a baseline understanding of it. Um, there's a gentleman from another Aussie podcast um, that I'm w wanting to talk to about it because he's 100% invested in it. He's spoken to Egyptian um, archaeologists and they seem to think that it's, it's, it's on the level. But what I've looked mm. at it, there's hieroglyphs on this rock, this formation that are from different time periods. There's from mm. the first kingdom, the later kingdoms. Um, there's the, the Macedonian invasion kind of influence in there as well. So it's looks like someone who has an understanding of hieroglyphs but wasn't able to compile them into a set time period and they just used what they could. That's a red flag for me on that one. Mm -hmm. um, the other part of it is the vast distances the Egyptians would have had to have gone, which I, I don't dismiss offhand because I believe the Phoenician Empire, the Sea People, whatever their original name would have been, they were everywhere in the world. Um, it explains a lot of the, the similarities in what you see in cultures around gods and Sea Peoples and fair-skinned people arriving in nations that were there long before colonial occupation so i don't dismiss the idea of egyptians finding australia i just don't see the idea of it being as large a scale as a lot of people make out like a lot of people talk about pyramids of gimpy and stuff like that i think that's just a it's more of a, a natural formation we do know that in nature geometry exists and um, geometric shapes do exist in nature i think that's probably more the case uh if there was some real evidence around it i think either if it was real maybe for whatever reason the, the british destroyed it early on that's the argument that i hear a lot or it's just a big hoax i don't know if there's a middle ground on that one i don't have enough information on it to make a decision either way mm. yeah I've, I've looked at pictures of those hieroglyphs and I, something about them that uh, like it, it could have been um, a very crude kind of carving, um, an authentic one, or it could be it could be a hoax because it is. I was going to actually go and have a look at them, and it was it was a couple of hours walk from where I was, which was just near the coast. So I mean, geogra geography could have been a lot different back then. We don't know, um, but it just seems like it's a fairly long way to go, and this just. If it was done by different people in different cultures, why why just that rock? <laughs> why not somewhere else? And why not? Yeah. So uh, I don't know. I'm I'm not fully convinced about those. But um, again, who knows? There's just so many questions. I think we've lost Jin. I was hoping he might come back. Oh, there he is. He's. Uh, can we just bring him back in? Yeah. Oh, there okay. he is. Oh. Oh, he's gone. <laughs> Sorry about that, guys. Sorry. I don't know what's happening. We were playing ping pong with you there for a oh, sec. Yeah. Well, that was a great question. I'm sorry. I was kind of like salivating at the mic a little bit. I, <laughs> I, I totally agree with you, Drew. I think I would love to hear actually your kind of theory on our – well, okay. So my current thinking is that perhaps our history is much more recent. That mm. is kind of where I'm – headed i think maybe as like a point of inquiry i think that maybe 1 ad like maybe just like the early pre-christian era like 300 bce i think that we can kind of like say that that's definitive and then before that it becomes so murky and just filled with all these metaphysical and kind of intellectual traps and like dead ends i think that people i i wasn't going to say this but there's that meme that's like we was kings so i think that no but i think that everybody does that i think everybody yeah. does that i think everybody projects himself into a historical past into a historical identity and i think like 
you know, when I was a kid, I used to do that. I just kind of grew out of that doing that. So I just think that that's interesting. And maybe I think we're a lot more closely related, perhaps, than we think. That's mm. kind of what I think. But I think I, there's I, a... Sorry, go sorry, ahead. Gina, I, th- I think there's a... Um... I think there's a potential trap in history. We know, like Stella alluded to, Chinese whispers and things change between storytelling and oral storytelling. We've seen what's happened in the last few years about changing um, books, changing articles on the internet. That happens in that small aspect and how quickly the narrative can switch and change. But the themes don't tend to change. Like a lot of these cultures, civilizations, they've all got a lot of themes that marry into each other. So either they all had a similar influence and they had an outside source which um, drove their culture or they had a common thread, or there's a theory that a lot of these prominent people and the prominent events are the same event and they're just retelling them. So an example of that would be a lot of prominent people in history um uh you see like genghis khan um there's a lot of evidence around genghis being a a red-headed blue-eyed step person he wasn't of uh the the asiatic mongolian ethnicity he was one of the the whiter or more caucus or european stock that's one of the proposals put forward the same with um, muhammad muhammad was supposedly a red-headed person a lot of these um conquerors these people that have these big influential parts of history tend to all be gingers and either that tells me that they either there was one big culture that was predominantly of that ethno group that were a part of that or we're all telling the same story but we're changing the names and the locations it's like you you know how you see in, in hollywood you have one movie comes out and then two weeks later the near same movie comes out the different title like dante's peak and volcano came out at the same time is that the same thing happening with cultures just in different parts of the world and we've all got this shared one story but we've lost when it happened and we've been separated at some point yeah i've i've often wondered that myself um there is there is many many new conclusions coming out that um history is yes not as old as we've been told um there's also the different dating uh, mechanisms that we have that are also debatable and constantly being um modified and updated so i think uh, science is not just a fixed thing is it it never is neither is history it appears or the the science of history <laughs> uh jin did you want to i think we'll probably need to start wrapping it up is there anything that you would like to say in um conclusion jin anything that we well, haven't covered no i mean i just will say to drew like i know we're both kind of gary wayne fans and I think that I don't necessarily agree with him on the Genghis Khan point. However, I think that there's a lot of archaeological evidence and like um, DNA and physical, like because they have some of his descendants are have their scalps or heads preserved in some of the museums in Mongolia, which I'm sure you're aware of, Drew. And there are pieces of. Um, supposedly of Chinggis Khan's hair at the Museum of Natural History in Beijing. So I am not dis- I'm not dismissing it at all. I'm just opening up the possibility that maybe that is not quite the history, but I do think that there is a Scythian kind of backstory. I think that there's also a Turkish Hun backstory, which I know you're interested in. I'm also very interested in that. And so I just think I think you're right. I think we just maybe don't Maybe we're just in like different parts of the same story. And I think that what I liked about the, the rainbow serpent is that I think that's a very non-dual idea that we're in. It's non-linear time. So it's non-progressive time. I think that's very common. I think especially when you're coming into like the more ecstatic traditions that were developing in like the medieval times, you're, you're kind of like this perennial idea of consciousness and reality and time and space and it's all kind of being thrown up in the air and saying what are these things actually what are these like assignations that people were making in the babylonian times what were the priests kind of like assigning to god in these different qualities so i think that i think i agree i think there is something really deep here and obviously we just touched like barely on the surface but like thank you so much drew for like coming on and doing this with me it's a big honor. No, anytime, mate. You'll have to come on mine because we need to have this conversation go longer. That's for sure. <laughs> I'd love to do that. 
Yeah, look, it could go on for hours and hours, I think. But um, <laughs> Drew, is there anything that you would like to say in um, conclusion? No, um, I'll probably I'll just say that, you know, history is, it is, it is his story. It's whoever's in control and in power <laughs> at the time peddles what their narrative of what they want ancestors and future generations to think their time was like. So we can see history change in a moment in our current age through digital technology. So take history with a grain of salt and don't take any one sources as the gospel. You kind of have to triangulate your data on, on anything you're looking into. And history becomes that, that enigma because so much of it is similar, but then there's large swaths of it, which differ and, and make things look like they're not the same, but there seems to be this core element of truth amongst all of it. And I think it's finding out that, that core of truth, which is the most exciting thing. Yeah, and we all know, well, most of us probably are aware that the places like the Smithsonian Institute are constantly covering up and lying about things, um, many, many things. I could, <laughs> We could go on all day about that one. Um, there is uh, a couple of people who, was one particular gentleman that I came across, Keith Windshuttle. Um, he's written, I don't know how many books, it's volume one that I'm looking at right now, The Fabrication of Aboriginal History, which uh, could be an interesting one to look through. I can put a link to the archive of that if anyone's interested to have a look. Um, I think what we can conclude is that there's no real conclusions <laughs> to any of this. Um, again, it is also, yes, like Drew pointed out, history is written by the victors or by the, the current people at the helm driving whatever narrative suits. Uh, but as we've just seen here in Tasmania, it is um, in Australia, sorry, uh, with the referendum, <laughs> thinking back, uh, with the referendum, it, it is it is actually re really important to think about these things and look into these um, so-called claims, look into the uh, counter uh, investigations or um, uh, genetic experiments that have uh, genetic um, research that has come to light or is available but not readily available some of these things are available but they're very hard to get hold of um, they're behind paywalls or there's broken links and things like that so it's quite obvious they don't really want us to know exactly what the truth is um, we only have to look at you know the knowledge hidden in the Vatican for instance as a very prime example of that so um, it is important to know our history, but um, it is shaping where we are today and it's going to shape our future. Um, but unfortunately, it's a little bit ambiguous. Um, we can agree, we can disagree, but um, we're never really going to know, are we? So um, I really appreciate you coming on today, you guys, uh, Jin and Drew. Thank you very much. Ashley, thank you for being here. Um, we'll just find out where it is that we can find you guys. Jin, do you want to tell us where we can find a little bit more of your work? Sure. So um, I'm just going to shout out Ashley and I are doing a series on NDEs on subconscious realms. Also check out Drew's amazing episode on Aboriginal spirits on subconscious realms, as well as Stella and Drew's amazing series on the voice, which I still think is very relevant because I think that when you're talking about undrip and we see Canada is such a great testing ground for all of that stuff because everything's already encoded in law. So I think that they take it and then they kind of export it to you guys because I saw that happened a lot with the New Zealand. So I'll just shout out that series and just mm. think everybody should go and listen and listen to that. And I will have a link tree. It doesn't really matter. I've been on the show many times, a couple times. So yeah, I'll just, I'll leave it to Drew. And thank you guys so much, Stella, Ashley, and Drew for having me again and yeah, facilitating this is really cool. Always Thanks a pleasure, much. Jen. And uh, yes, whenever you do have your link tree, always let me know. You know, I'm going to be sharing that out. So, yeah, I'm very much looking forward to hearing your your um, episodes with with Ashley and all all the other things that you're doing. Drew, do you want to tell us where we can get hold of you? Yeah, I'm um, Drew Misson from Your Missing the Point podcast. M I W S E N. Um, my show is pretty much these types of conversations, ranges from politics to religion to faith to spirituality to cryptids all sorts of crazy fun stuff the conversations that you can't have around the dinner table for obvious reasons <laughs> uh and then i've got an educational podcast called the homeroom educating educators in which myself a public school teacher and my lovely co-host a homeschooling mum from the states we discuss ways in which you can help your child uh navigate the educational system and then third podcast 
um, Conspiracy Theatre 3000, where myself, Moral Bob, and Ryan Dean, we break down cinema cult classics for hidden symbolism and the esoteric. Great. All interesting podcasts and, um, yeah, excellent to know that someone is out there educating the educators because Lord knows we need that. Ashley, um, would you like to tell us where you can find the Union of the Unknowns, please? Well, Stella, I'm glad that you asked. <laughs> you can find us at unionoftheunknowns.com. That's our Linktree page, and it has all the myriad ways to get in touch with us, including the link to our Discord, which we would be more than happy to have you join. And you can find me managing the Union of the Unknowns Twitter account at unionunknowns over on Twitter. Excellent. Well, it's been um, very inspiring and educational. Thank you very much for being here. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And we look forward to bringing you more episodes in the near future. God bless. Thank we you. are out. Thank you. See ya. Thank you for tuning in for another episode of Union of the Unknowns. You can find new episodes every week on all your favorite podcasting networks.